Hi, everybody. Welcome to the official RBYA podcast. We hope that whatever content we bring to you, whether it be messages or interviews or whatever else it may be, we hope that it would be edifying, that it would help you grow in maturity and in faith and the, in the knowledge of God. And we also hope that you stick around for any future announcements or updates. We hope you enjoy. God is good. People use that phrase a lot in Christian circles. You probably use that phrase regularly. A lot of times we use the phrase, God is good, when things go our way unexpectedly. Like you forget to study for an exam, but you end up getting an A anyways. And you say, I can't believe that happened. God is so good. Other times we use that expression when we narrowly avoid some kind of tragedy, some kind of disaster, like you're supposed to be on a flight, but at the last second your schedule changes, and then that plane ends up crashing and everyone dies. And you say, that could have been me. God is so good. Or you go to the doctor, and it's a routine checkup, but he finds cancer. But it's early enough in the process so they can treat it. And so you'll be okay. And you say, I'm so glad they found that. God is good. And when you say that, you're right. God is good. But is God still good when you bomb the exam? Is God still good when the doctors don't find the cancer until it's in the final stages and you just have months to live? Is God still good then? What about when the young married couple finds out they cannot have children? What about when your high school son or daughter comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, I don't believe in this Christianity stuff anymore. I'm done with church. Is God still good then? What about when you get laid off at your job because of corporate downsizing? And you can't even pay your rent. Is God still good then? See, I'm concerned that many of us have a wrong view of God's goodness. We have a, a small view of God's goodness. And instead of understanding God's goodness according to the biblical understanding, we kind of write our own definition. And we evaluate his goodness based on the world's standard. So we bring God down to our level. We subject him to our opinions. And we say God is good as long as he does whatever we want. We say God is good as long as he meets my needs and my wishes. But when God doesn't do that, he's not good. When God doesn't do that, he's ungood. And when we don't treat God as good as he is, we devalue him. We dishonor him. And when we don't treat God as good as he is, we set ourselves up for spiritual heartache, for spiritual disappointment. And so I would contend with you that no matter where you're at in your Christian life, if you're young in the faith or if you've been walking with Jesus for 40 years, we need to understand the goodness of God. We need to understand it with a biblical understanding. Not only 
for the sake of our own spiritual well-being. But also for the sake of the glory of God, because you must understand the glory of God is at risk when we don't view him as great and as mighty as he truly is. So this morning, I want to examine the goodness of God with you. Because it's of critical importance to your spiritual well-being and to the glory of our great God. We'll examine his goodness in three ways this morning. First, we'll look at the definition. What is the definition of God's goodness? According to scripture, what does it even mean? Then we'll look at the demonstration of God's goodness. That is, how does God display his goodness? Who are the recipients of his goodness? And then finally, what are the demands of God's goodness? What does his goodness require from us as far as lifestyle? My prayer is that as we examine the goodness of God, not only will your heart rejoice to see that God is infinitely more wonderful than perhaps you imagined, but also that you would just see him as beautiful in the fullness of his goodness. Let's begin with a definition of God's goodness. What does the Bible mean? What do I mean when I say God is good? It is one of his attributes. It's one of his perfections. Well, one theologian described it like this. The goodness of God is that perfection in which, or rather which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with his creatures. It is the affection which the creator feels toward his creatures. It's the affection which the creator feels towards his creatures. Another way of thinking about it is the goodness of God refers to his benevolent nature. That inherent quality in God that compels him to be good. To display his goodness and acts of kindness to his people and really to his creation. So when you think about the goodness of God. It is his desire to bless and benefit and do good to those outside of him. And it's important to note that God's goodness is his essence, right? It's, it is his very nature. So God's goodness isn't something he's growing in. You and I have to grow in goodness. We have to work at being good to others. For God, it, it's perfectly natural because it is who he is. He was good in the past. He's good today in the present. And he will be good in the future. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. We see the same declaration in Psalm 106 verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Then Psalm 119 verse 68 says this. You are good and do good. And the consistent message here is that God is, in all of who he is, in all his fullness, he is good. He seeks and desires to benefit and bless. And it's not because somebody taught him how to be good. 
Not because the angels instructed him in how to be good. It's because his very nature and essence is goodness. Perfectly good, holy good, fully good. And that also means that God's goodness doesn't come and go. He's not like the wind. Blows here, blows there. His goodness is always present. It's not like the tides of the sea. It comes in and it comes out. God's goodness is always being displayed. Perpetually. And it's important to understand that God's goodness is perpetual. It's constant and eternal. Because if God wasn't always good, like He's good when things go our way, but He's not so good when they don't go our way, if that was true, then God would be changeable. The theological word is He'd be mutable. He could go back and forth in His characteristics. And if He did that, then He would cease to be God. Because the Scripture says, God cannot change. What He is and who He is, He is eternally. Malachi 3.6, James 1.17, Numbers 23.19. So, know this, God's goodness endures forever because it is His nature and His nature doesn't change. One of the Puritans described it in this way. God is originally good, good of Himself, which nothing else is. For all creatures are good only by participation and communication from God. He is essentially good. Not only good, but He is goodness itself. In His essence. He is infinitely good. In God there is an infinite ocean or gathering together of good. He is eternally and immutably good. Meaning unchangeably good. The scripture gives... One of the most fundamental declarations of God's goodness in Exodus 34. Turn with me to Exodus 34. Because I want to show you this declaration of God's goodness that helps us understand how His goodness reveals itself. So in the context of Exodus 34, Moses has just asked God, to reveal his glory to him. That was in Exodus 33. Moses said, show me your glory. And God agrees and he says, I will pass all of my goodness before you. But I have to hide you in the rock and cover you so that when I pass by, basically you're not extinguished. You're not destroyed. You can only see my back for no man can see my face and live. And so that's precisely what God does. And in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, after God passes by through Moses in the fullness of his majesty, God makes this declaration. Verse 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And I love Moses' response in verse 8. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. What an example is Moses as he sees God's goodness, as he hears this powerful declaration of God's goodness. 
J.I. Packer notes about verses 6 and 7. He says this, all the perfections of God that are mentioned here, all of the attributes of God that God announces about himself and everything that goes with these attributes, these things together make up God's goodness in the overall sense of the sum total of his revealed excellence. What he's saying is, when God declares that he is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, God is declaring the, the expression of his goodness. All of those perfections come together to form God's goodness. It's like a, a diamond or a beautiful necklace. Imagine this priceless jeweled necklace. It's got various precious stones in it, diamonds, rubies, sapphires, emeralds, pearls. It's of exquisite value. And as you look at this necklace, each jewel has a particular beauty and clarity. And each jewel gives additional elegance to the necklace. But each individual jewel is not the necklace in itself. It is in its composition together, each jewel together on the strand that composes this beautiful priceless necklace. So in this illustration, the necklace is the goodness of God in its totality. But the, the ruby, you could say, this ruby of God's goodness, sometimes is expressed as covenantal love, as loving kindness. You read that word often in the Old Testament. God's loving kindness is the basis for David's plea for forgiveness in Psalm 51.1. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. There's also the diamond of God's goodness, which is expressed in his mercy and his compassion toward those who are in misery. Deuteronomy 4.31 says, For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. Now there's also the emerald of God's goodness. And the emerald of God's goodness displays itself in his patience, in his slowness to anger towards those who sin against him. Nahum 1.3 says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. But then there's more to come on this necklace of God's goodness. There's the sapphire of God's goodness. And this comes in his grace. This is where God shows favor to those who deserve nothing but punishment. Romans 5 verse 15 says, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God. And the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And this last jewel on the necklace of God's goodness. This last jewel would be the pearl of God's goodness. And this is the kind of love expressed in John 3.16 which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And as you consider the different expressions of God's goodness here, now you're beginning to comprehend the fullness of what his goodness means. And it is indeed a beautiful, priceless 
attribute that adorns God as beautiful and magnificent. So this is the definition of God's goodness. Let's look at the demonstration of God's goodness. And the demonstration of God's goodness, I want to show you who he expresses his goodness towards, who are the recipients of his goodness, and what does that look like in practical terms? What does God's goodness actually manifest itself as? Well, the scripture says there are three groups to whom God displays his goodness. Three groups. And you could actually think of it like a pyramid. Three levels to this pyramid. The, and as you go up, each successive level experiences a deeper and richer form of God's goodness. So the base level of this pyramid, the bottom tier, would be creation in general. So the created world in general or rather experiences God's goodness. Psalm 145 verses 9, 15, and 16 says, The Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all His works. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So the psalmist here is declaring that there is a universal expression of God's goodness. And a universal expression that covers all of creation. Without discrimination, without exception. It's like the sun of God's goodness shines on everyone. And it manifests itself, it displays itself in this verse with God as the provider. It says he opens his hands and satisfies the desire of every living thing. He gives them food in due time. So this is God satisfying the needs of his creation, sustaining his creation. Psalm 65 adds another element to this. Psalm 65, 9 through 13, it says, you visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty, and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. Again, there is a universal blessing, a universal demonstration of God's goodness to all of creation. And this verse pictures God as the master gardener. And the earth is his garden. And he waters it and he cultivates it and he cares for it. And I think here in Portland you actually get a very intimate expression of that because you get so much rainfall. And you see everything is so green and lush, which stands out when you're from California like me and the favorite color is brown. So in Portland you see this demonstration of God's goodness Maybe a bit more acutely than we do in some ways down in Los Angeles. There's another demonstration of God's goodness. Another group that receives his goodness. This is the second tier of that pyramid, right? First one is creation in general. And now we have mankind in general. The good and the bad. The righteous and the unrighteous. This is mankind in general receives a higher level of goodness than does just the general creation, the earth. As the image bearers of God, man 
receives a special goodness. Listen to what Psalm 8 says about this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea. And whatever passes through the sea. In this verse we see a different kind of goodness. That wasn't manifested to creation in general. More than the heavens, more than the stars, more than all the hosts. Man receives a special blessing of goodness from God. This verse says that blessing is being exalted. Because it is man who God thinks about and cares about. It is man who God has crowned with glory and majesty. It is man who God has established as ruler over the created order. It is man whom God has given authority over creatures. One last verse that I want you to see, this time from the New Testament. Paul is in context preaching to the the people of Lystra, a pagan, unconverted people. They don't know the one true God. And so as he evangelizes them in Acts chapter 14, listen to what Paul highlights about the almighty God. He says, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Did you eat yesterday? If you ate yesterday, you experienced part of this goodness of God. Because God is the one who causes the crops to grow. And he causes the crops to go grow so that you may eat, so that your hearts, as it says, may be satisfied with food and gladness. See, the Bible doesn't say that God gives that special kind of care to the creatures to ensure that their hearts are filled with gladness. But yet, to man, to his image bearers, he does. So let me just take a moment and think with you about some of the many, many evidences of God's goodness that we as humans enjoy. Think about food. God could have made everything taste like oatmeal. Not maple and brown sugar oatmeal, but like just plain oatmeal. And that would have been a boring existence, right? But instead, we have this amazing variety of of tastes and flavors and sensations. Who hasn't enjoyed a plate of sarmale and known that God was good? It's enough to make me want to be Romanian. Just that alone. Think about sights. The beautiful things that we can see in this earth. The splendor of a rainbow. The majesty of the sun coming up over the mountains. God didn't have to give us that. Everything could have looked like the bleak desert. How about scents and smell? The smell of a rose. The aroma of honeysuckle. The aroma of lavender. God didn't have to give us smells 
delightful, pleasant smell. But he's given us even more than just taste and sight and smells. What about sounds? What about that beautiful chirping of birds? The, the thunder of a waterfall like Mount Multnomah Falls as it crashes down upon the rocks. How about the beauty of a symphony by Bach or Beethoven or Tchaikovsky? Or even our piano player, Nick. Right? God has gifted us with the ability to enjoy music and sound. And he didn't have to do that. And that is to say nothing of the other benefits that mankind enjoys. Things like marriage and family and work and sleep and recreation. Every one of those benefits comes to us as a pure kindness and goodness from God. But the animals don't get to participate in that like we do. They don't enjoy it in the sense that mankind does. But as, as marvelous as these goodnesses are to mankind, it gets even better. See, there's that top tier of the pyramid. That upper echelon, that upper level. And the group that experiences the sweetest and the richest forms of God's goodness are believers. Even above mankind in general, we as Christians experience all the fullness of God's goodness. The greatest of which is salvation. Listen to Titus 3. But when the kindness or goodness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Could there be a more compelling demonstration of the goodness of God and salvation. Think about the wonder of forgiveness of sins, of redemption from sin, of regeneration, of justification, of being made right with God, of reconciliation, of the giving and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us, and of future glorification where we will one day be eternally, finally, and fully free of sin. And an inheritance, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, an inheritance in heaven reserved for us, imperishable, undefiled, reserved in heaven. That comes to believers. That is the goodness of God expressed to you. And just for that alone, just for that alone, God deserves infinite praise and worship. But that's actually not the extent of his blessings. It doesn't end at that point. Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. See, we as believers enjoy every spiritual blessing in Christ, the author of our salvation. And it comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And those spiritual blessings refer to all the spiritual resources that we need for our well-being. 
You see, God didn't forget one thing that we would need. He has richly, lavishly poured it out upon us through the Holy Spirit to those who are in Christ. And I would have to ask this morning, are you one who has experienced the fullness of God's blessings in Christ? Are you yourself in Christ? Are you partaking of Christ through salvation? Do you personally know the gift of salvation? Because this greatest and sweetest blessing, it isn't enjoyed by all. It is enjoyed by believers. And if you have never repented of sin and placed your faith in Christ alone, then this gift is one that you cannot enjoy. But the marvelous news is, Christ is willing to give it to all. If we will come to him, he will offer that marvelous blessing of salvation. And you can have it. And then all the spiritual blessings of God become yours. That is the demonstration of God's goodness. It, it should blow your mind to think of how he has displayed his goodness to us. And in view of his goodness, in view of the richness of all that he has just showered upon us, it is only right that his goodness should make demands of our lives. So that's what we will look at now. What are the demands of God's goodness? How are we to live in light of the goodness of God? Are we merely to just enjoy it and to think about it? but walk out of here today and live the same kind of life. No, no, no. His goodness is meant to compel us to action. Here's the first response. Be thankful. The goodness of God should, could, should compel you to cultivate gratitude. Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and catch this, and forget none of his benefits. We ought to be so consumed with rehearsing the goodness of God in our lives that we're the most thankful people anywhere. We should live with a constant spirit of gratitude. And by the way, that's really not an option. Paul commands us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. His will, the will of God Almighty, is that we give thanks in everything. And the grammar there, it doesn't mean give thanks once. It's to continually give thanks, to live in an attitude of gratitude, you could say. To let thankfulness be your defining characteristic. When's the last time you stopped and thanked God for things? That you thanked God for a sunny day, for wonderful weather, for a church that's open. Do you thank God for these things? You know, it's very easy for us to be aware of the good things that God has given us. If we're going to be thankful, usually we'll be thankful for when life is going well. 
But see, we're meant to be thankful for when life is not going well. It's easy to be grateful when your kids are healthy, when your marriage is happy, when your pantry is full of food. It's easy to be happy and thankful when you get that college scholarship and in the fall you're going to that university you've always dreamed of going. That's when it's pretty easy to be grateful. How about when your kids are sick and the baby cried all night and you got no sleep? You going to be grateful then? How about when you're in a relationship that you think is headed to marriage and then the other party just backs out and says, I can't, I'm done. How about when you're an athlete and you blow your knee in practice, you tear an ACL and then all your dreams of college sports go up in smoke? Are you going to be grateful in those moments? See, we, we have to wrestle our hearts into a state of gratitude because it's not our default condition, but it is our required condition. God says, be thankful, give thanks. So the first response to the goodness of God is be thankful. Be thankful when it's easy and be thankful when it's hard. The goodness of God also demands that we do good. That we do good. When we do good, that is when we are kind to others, when we display charity, compassion, graciousness, when we do good to others, we give God glory. Matthew 5 says that. Jesus, in his own words, says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So do good. That's the encouragement here. Do good to others. Now, what does good look like? What, what could good look like in your life? Well, the opportunities are endless. You could be generous. Invite a friend out to lunch, and you pay this time. You could be thoughtful. Instead of always talking about you with your friends, why don't you try something different? Why don't you ask about them? Why don't you show interest in their life, what's happening in their life? You could be selfless. You know a family in the church is sick? Make a meal, bring it to them. You could be helpful. You know that someone needs to go to the airport and they've got to be dropped off or picked up at PDX? Offer to take them. Save them 20, 30 bucks on an Uber. See, the opportunities to do good to others are limitless. And you may be wondering, okay, I'll do good to people, but who am I responsible to do good to? Who does God expect me to show this goodness to? Well, you can start by showing it to believers. Galatians 6, 9 and 10 says, this is Paul speaking, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. If you're looking for someone to do good to, why don't you just look left and right and you found them. Do good to those who are of the household of faith. But what about non-Christians? Do you have any responsibility to do good to non-Christians? I mean, after all, they don't even love Jesus. Well, what did Paul say in Galatians 6.10? Let us do good to all people. 
So yes, that nasty neighbor you have, you're meant to do good to that person as well. But what about enemies? Surely God would not make you do good to enemies. I mean, after all, they're your enemy. Well, Jesus has an answer for that in Matthew 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. So if you want to be like your heavenly father, do good to your enemies. The co-worker at work who makes fun of you because of a Christian. Your friends at school who don't even talk to you anymore because you refuse to take part in their filthy discussions. You don't use the kind of gross, crass language that they use. Do good. Lastly, seek good. It may sound weird to think that I'm supposed to seek goodness. But that's what the scripture says. Psalm 34, 8 is explicit in how it explains this. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see are experiential things. And those are obligations, right? Those are actually commands. You are required to taste and see that God is good. And the idea is that God commands you to taste that he is good. That is, to live a life of faith. And in living a life of faith, you will then see that he is good. You will then experientially see evidences of God's goodness in your life. That's what it means to taste and see. And you're commanded to do that. To seek good from God in that way. So how do you seek good? How are you supposed to taste and see? Well, one way that you do it is through prayer. One way you seek God's goodness is through prayer. The English pastor John Gill says that prayer is the way and the means that God has appointed for the communication of his blessing to his people. So the wings of prayer carry goodness to you. So you're meant to pray and and seek God's goodness. You seek God's goodness by coming to him for forgiveness of sin. Psalm 25, 7 says, do not remember the sins of my youth or the trans or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. We also seek God's goodness when we cry out to him in the midst of persecution. Psalm 109 Verses 29 and 21 and 22 rather says, but you, O God, the Lord, deal kindly with me for your name's sake, because your loving kindness is good. Deliver me for I am afflicted and needy and my heart is wounded within me. David is asking for God to act on his behalf in the midst of a time of heavy persecution Earlier part of that psalm, it makes clear that David's enemies are pursuing him. That wicked foes are attacking him. And so he comes to God and he says, deliver me, help me, support me, strengthen me. According to your, because your loving kindness is good, is what he says. So when you are being persecuted, because you believe in Jesus, when you're passed over for promotion at work, Because you're a true Christian. 
cry out to God, seek his help. And in so doing, you are seeking good from the one who is eternally good. Isn't God good? We know the answer to that question, don't we? Based on the clear testimony of Scripture, we can affirm God is good. He is good at all times. God is good when you're happy and when you're sad. God is good when you're healthy and when you're sick. God is good when you're single and when you're married. God is good when you get that job and when you get rejected for that job. God is good when your bank account is large and when you can barely make ends meet. God is good at all times because goodness is his nature. Church, I pray that the goodness of God would so captivate you that it ignites your heart with praise and that you give him glory and honor and worship for this beauty of his goodness. Let's pray. Father, we deserve none of your goodness, none of your benefits, and yet you so freely and lavishly pour them out upon us. I pray that we would be a thankful people. We would be a people who do good and who seek good. And I pray that we would know you in your fullness as a God who is totally perfectly, eternally good. And may that cause us to love you with an ever deeper love. Amen.